Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Turn off the I-90 interstate in South Dakota at the hamlet of Wall, and you can peer into a 25-meter concrete hole. The Delta 9 missile site is open to visitors. In the 1970s, there were more than a thousand of these silos scattered across the Midwest containing nuclear warheads. These days, 400 Minutemen missiles still lurk beneath the planes. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Fudeau, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how will Joe Biden seek to maintain America's superpower status? President Biden has reassured allies that America is back and that its model of liberal democracy isn't a relic of history. Many of his fellow Democrats would like to reverse the militarization of foreign policy since 9-11. But America's alliances are built on hard power. Can Joe Biden live up to his own rhetoric as he tries to re-engage with the world? In this episode, we'll discuss America's aging nuclear arsenal, pay tribute to Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State, George Shultz, who helped bring an end to the Cold War, and hear from Fiona Hill, a former presidential advisor on Russia. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the U.S. digital editor. Charlotte, what's going on in New York? All's well in New York. I wanted to make two small comments on last week's episode. One is that I misspoke about hydrogen blended with methane for all of the people who really care about this distinction um, listening, and that pretty soon you don't want to have any methane as part of the mix because it's carbon polluting, but more important... I realize that Richard Branson is the guy who wanted a three-day weekend, and you should never take vacation advice from someone who has his own island. So we should just discount that completely. Those are definitely words to live by. How about you, John? Have you got anything to apologize for this week? Oh, I'm sure I do. How long do we have? Should we make this a full apology pod? Nothing comes to mind right now, but I'll, I'll think of something. In that case, can you tell me, I go to Charlotte for advice on how to save the planet. And I tend to come to you for culinary advice. And this week, one of the things you told me when we were chatting about what we were going to make our families for dinner was that you were making braised elk for your family. How did that go? It went well. I think I overcooked it slightly. Elk is super lean, but it was it was delicious, and I will do it again. Where'd you get the elk? Uh, from a game processor up near my wife's family's place in rural New England. Charlotte, you forget, but we discovered this when we did that episode on preppers, that John Fasman has a prepping side to him. He would survive in the world perfectly happily, as far as I can see. Not happily. Well, as far as I'm hearing, it's not like he went out and shot the elk, correct? 
I, I punched the elk with my bare hands. It was I, I boxed <laughs> the, elk the elk into submission. That's much better. The New Yorker's version of hunting is just having a conversation with the elk such that it saps the elk's will to live and then it just gives up. <laughs> it just jumps into a bagel. Okay, well, this may be an awkward turn in the podcast, but let's pause that conversation of hard power in the face of elk and turn to discussion of another kind of hard power. The Economist's defense editor, Shashank Joshi, has written a story for us this week highlighting some tricky decisions Joe Biden will have to make about upgrading America's stockpile of ballistic missiles. America's nuclear weapons are aging. If you think about the B-52 bomber, for example, that hit the drawing board one year after the Second World War finished, and it's still going strong. If you look at the B-2, a stealthy aircraft, that's going to retire in a decade or so. The oldest Ohio-class submarine, which carries America's nuclear weapons in the oceans, is going to celebrate its 40th birthday in November. So all of these weapons, including the Minuteman 3 missiles dug into silos across the Midwest, are all getting on a bit, and they all need replacement sooner rather than later. Renewing America's nuclear deterrent is not necessarily what a new democratic administration wants to be doing. I mean, if you think back to Barack Obama in 2009, he gave that speech in Prague where he talked about nuclear disarmament and was subsequently awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to his embarrassment. Why are these decisions about the nuclear deterrent so important to Joe Biden's foreign policy? They're important for a couple of reasons. One of them is that it's an incredibly expensive project. Modernising America's nuclear forces could cost around half a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. And these weapons may have to last decades into the future, into the 2060s, into the 2070s, many, many presidents hence. So the decisions that Biden takes are going to bind his successors for decades to come. I think they're also important because this is a president who has come into office pledging not necessarily to demilitarize American foreign policy, but to reduce the salience of military instruments, of nuclear instruments, and put diplomacy back in the front seat. And so there is a natural tension, I think, in between building up these nuclear capabilities that his military says that they want and need, and that allies say they want and need America to have, and, on the other hand, reducing the degree to which military instruments dominate American foreign policy. How does this leave America's allies feeling? I think anxious. They're obviously delighted to have a a normal president back in the White House, one who values alliances and says so publicly. But on the other hand, nuclear weapons are really important to them. Let's remember that allies in Europe and allies in Asia, like Japan and South Korea, are under what we call America's nuclear umbrella. So, for example, if North Korea attacks South Korea, America has effectively pledged to say we will attack and retaliate against Pyongyang. So these people depend on America's nuclear weapons. They would be worried not just if the number of weapons were to fall, uh, if the effectiveness of those weapons were to decline, but also if America's nuclear posture, as we call it, were to change. And one really big debate that we're going to see in the administration, and it played out in the Obama administration as well, is whether America should move from a posture of saying, we will retaliate against a country like North Korea, even if it hasn't attacked us, even if it's only attacked our ally, to a posture of something called no first use, which is to say, if they only used conventional means to attack South Korea, then we would only use conventional weapons ourselves to retaliate. And that makes 
South Koreans nervous, it makes Japanese officials nervous, and I think it, it would be something that Europeans would watch very carefully as well. And here's the tension. The administration may want to reduce the salience of nuclear weapons and get away from the days of Donald Trump, fire and fury against Kim Jong-un, but doing so is going to make allies sit up and take notice, and in some cases feel a little bit anxious. John, this talk about demilitarization in foreign policy is sounding a little bit familiar. What are the overlaps and what are the differences that you see with the past four years of American foreign policy under Donald Trump? Well, you're right that Donald Trump also talked about demilitarization, although he didn't quite put it that way. He ran saying he wanted to stop America's forever wars. And when he left office, he very proudly said he was the first president in a while not to get America into any new wars. So I think there is a tremendous amount of popular fatigue of America's global role, but there is a difference. You'll remember that while Donald Trump may have come to office saying he didn't want to get involved in any more wars, he also didn't hesitate to threaten North Korea with military attacks. He threatened to dispatch the American military to cities where there are protests taking place. And similarly, Joe Biden talks about demilitarization, but he also has to think about updating the nuclear triad. I think what we're seeing is that it's a lot easier to give voice to this sort of fatigue with military commitment than it is to really think about what it might mean to have a strongly demilitarized America. Yeah, I think the difference in demilitarization might be this. Demilitarization under Donald Trump seemed to often mean pulling American troops out of places where allies quite wanted them to be. I mean, you think of West Germany, for example. You think the noises he made about pulling troops out of East Asia as well. Demilitarization under Joe Biden, I think, is a bit different. It's not withdrawing American troops from places where allies would rather like them to be. It's more a question of making diplomacy a bigger part of American foreign policy. I do think there's a good argument to be made. Well, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it, that since 9-11, at least, hard power, military power has just been the forefront of American foreign policy. And Joe Biden's ideal, and let's see how this stacks up with whatever happens over the next couple of years, Joe Biden's ideal is to make diplomacy a much bigger part of American foreign policy, and to use the military to solve fewer problems. I'd say just one thing on the hard power point, which I think is right. But it's worth noting that George Bush, in addition to wanting to spread democracy through the Middle East, he did see a very large role for American aid. And that was a part of American foreign policy that Donald Trump wasn't interested in at all. So George W. Bush increased funding for PEPFAR, which is a big AIDS program and a malaria program. And you had a really big increase in aid in 2001, it was about $23 billion, And by 2008, when Bush left, it had more than doubled. So I do think that's worth noting as part of America's package of foreign policy over that period. John, I'm struck by the fact that for all the difference of tone, which I think is very welcome among American allies, Joe Biden's foreign policy, he's just faced with a set of really familiar dilemmas, isn't he? I mean, Barack Obama wanted to get out of the Middle East and found that difficult. I think Joe Biden also wants to get out of the Middle East, is going to find that difficult, primarily because of Iran's nuclear ambitions, which remain unresolved. The Biden administration's now got to go back to trying to find a way to deal with Iran, which was a you know, problem that bedeviled the Trump administration uh, and the Obama administration before that. And actually, but the tail end of the George W. Bush administration too. There's the uh, US-China confrontation, 
which doesn't get any easier now you've got a new president. There's international climate change diplomacy, which we talked about last week, which doesn't get any easier with a new president. So you know, for all the talk about America being back and for all the fact that the Biden administration has this very experienced cadre of diplomats in senior positions, the problems don't get any easier to resolve. Yeah, the problem is, and I don't think this is a problem fundamentally, but it is a problem for presidents who want to demilitarize America, is that the post-war world really was built around American power and the projection of American power and American alliances that are often founded on military power, however much you know the alliances may include soft power, however sort of however much they may also include diplomacy, there's got to be an iron fist inside the velvet glove. And so figuring out how to make that fist smaller or less threatening, while also not inviting a degree of instability, of global instability, is really, really difficult. There's one thing that I want to highlight, which I think seems so basic, it's almost easy to gloss over. But in the speech that Biden made to allies last week, he spoke about democracy and about the need to prove that our model isn't a relic of history, which was a clear response to the critique from China and Russia. And he said, we we must demonstrate that democracies can still deliver for our people in this changed world. And back when George W. Bush was president and he spoke about democracy, it was much more in an expansive way that he wanted to spread democracy to different parts of the world and spread freedom. It had almost an evangelical tinge. And when Joe Biden talks, America's now in this extraordinary position of talking about democracy in a defensive manner. And that's in part because over the past 10 years, China has not just become a big growing economy, but it's clear that it's a huge strategic rival that offers a different mode of government. And China can say that America is a country unable to deal with certain issues. It's a country unable to deal with inequality or climate or whatever problem they'd want to point to. And then also you have the Trump era in which you had a president who aligned himself with strongmen around the world and who questioned the democratic process. So it's sort of remarkable to have an American president who needs to get up and defend democracy as a model, period. I do think that that's worth noting because it's such a change from the beginning of the millennium. John, just to return to this question of the nuclear deterrent, which is so vital to allies, particularly Japan and South Korea, how constrained will Joe Biden be on that by a democratic party politics? I mean, if you go back and look at Joe Biden's own career, early on when he first ran for the Senate all those many moons ago, I think you could describe him as nuclear sceptic. He, he certainly thought there was way too much of an expectation worldwide that America's nuclear umbrella would keep the world safe. There's certainly a constituency within the Democratic Party which is very sceptical about first-use doctrine, which Shashank mentioned in passing. And certainly a lot of Democrats wouldn't be thrilled at the idea of spending a vast amount of money now renewing the nuclear triad when they've got so many other things on their wish list. And Biden is not just a nuclear skeptic. I think he's sort of, he's instinctually dovish, right? He warned Barack Obama about getting boxed in by the generals. He was much more skeptical, I think, of the surge in troop levels in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so I don't think it's just Democratic Party politics that may constrain him. I think it's his own instincts, which are probably, if he was pushed, you know, no first use instincts. I mean, the problem with that is that how do you then constrain aggression? I think Japan and South Korea are not wrong to be nervous. I suspect that there's probably a coterie in, in Taiwan that's quite nervous. So I suspect Biden will probably get tested fairly soon. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see what his response will be. 
Thanks both. We'll hear a bit more about Joe Biden's early history in foreign policy in the Senate and his tussles with the great cold warrior George Shultz in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. We've put a link to Shashank's report on nukes in the episode notes. I can also recommend the lead story on the demise of tech monopolies and the Johnson column on how artificial intelligence is changing grammar. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. The death of George Shultz this month, just a couple of weeks after the inauguration of a new president, has made for some thoughtful reflections on America's global role. As Ronald Reagan, Secretary of State, Schultz played a big part in ending the Cold War and creating the unipolar world we've inhabited since his retirement in 1989. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor and in normal non-Covid times my office mate, she's written about Schultz in this week's paper. The year is 1986. Thank you, Mr Chairman. So it was a pleasure for me to appear... We are in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And especially today... They are discussing the Reagan administration's policy towards South Africa. The president's ringing denunciation of apartheid yesterday. And in the dock, or in the witness seat, is George Shultz, then the Secretary of State. I'd have to disagree with you, Senator. I think to say that President... And interrogating him is a young senator from Delaware. These people are being crushed! And we're sitting here with the same kind of rhetoric, the same thing we heard. We heard go slow. Who is furious that the Reagan administration seems not to care how people are being crushed in South Africa. Of course he feels frustration. We all feel frustration. Yeah, but his people are dying. His people are dying. You feel frustration. They're dying. And he is facing a man, George Schultz, who takes a different view, really, of policy and human beings who wants to make sure that, as well as political freedoms, people always have their economic freedom. Furthermore, Senator, let me say that I hate to hear a Senator of the United States calling for violence. I'm not calling That's for violence. That's what you're doing. I hate and so you have a clash of ideologies going on here and a clash of personalities between an impassioned young Senator and a statesman who has held four cabinet posts under two Republican presidents and is now the Secretary of State, one of the most important offices in the land. The young senator who was upbraiding him was, of course, Joe Biden. That's what I'm ashamed of. I'm ashamed of the lack of moral backbone to this policy. Well, I I resent that. I resent that deeply. George Shultz had had a distinguished career in government under Nixon, and he had gone back to Stanford and didn't particularly mind whether he was called to serve in government again. But by 1982, Reagan and uh, even more his wife Nancy had come to realise that Alexander Haig, who was the Secretary of State, was really too volatile a character to stay in that post. And Nancy said to Ronald Reagan, call George. 
The main problem with the job at that time was that the whole Department of State was riven with fierce disagreements over attitudes towards the Soviet Union. So Schultz walked into this extremely difficult situation and his own idea always was to listen to people, not to talk very much, to sit in a rather expressionless, steely way, just noticing what people said and weighing them up, slow and deliberative and intense. He and Reagan grew to be extremely close. They had twice-weekly private chats in which they were both perfectly open and honest with each other and built up a most tremendous relationship of trust. Reagan simply relied on Schultz to carry out all the policy that he wanted to make towards the Russians. He relied on him completely. If history teaches anything, it teaches that simple-minded appeasement or wishful thinking about our adversaries is folly. It means the betrayal of our past, the squandering of our freedom. So I urge you to speak out against those who would place the United States in a position of military and moral inferiority. Schultz took as his policy that, first of all, America must show enormous strength and the alliance, the NATO alliance, had to show great cohesion in the face of Russia. They had to show they were prepared to do difficult things. So on the one hand, they had to act quite fiercely and seriously. And on the other hand, they had to be trying to talk to them and make a path towards reducing nuclear weapons. In 1983, when talks had really reached a stalemate, Schultz and Reagan decided they would deploy America's ballistic missiles, the Pershings, in Germany, which was a terrific show of strength, not just the strength of America, but the strength of the NATO alliance. At the same time, he was secretly talking once a week to the Soviet ambassador in Washington, Anatoly Dobrynin. There was a constant open discussion of what could be done to reduce weapons. When Mikhail Gorbachev appeared, suddenly everything was different. There was a man with whom you could have a proper conversation. Talk started again. And in 1985, there was a meeting at Reykjavik with Reagan and Schultz and Gorbachev. And the Russians put all their cards on the table and said, we are going to reduce our weapons entirely and we ask you to do the same. But the Americans actually couldn't agree to that because Reagan in 1983 had started his strategic defense initiative so-called Star Wars, which was a defensive missile shield over the whole of the United States. And this he was not prepared to give up. So the Reykjavik talks broke up with no agreement, but there had been all the same a real establishment of trust, which was for Schultz always the most important thing. As long as there was trust between the parties, then you could make progress. Let me explain this with a saying I've often repeated. Nations do not distrust each other because they're armed. They are armed because they distrust each other. 
And the talks did resume. By 1986, there was an agreement on the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. By 1987, it was signed. And that was the first of the significant nuclear arms reduction treaties, a very big moment for Schultz. As I am speaking to you now, General Secretary Gorbachev is leaving on his return trip to the Soviet Union. His departure marks the end of three historic days here in Washington, in which Mr. Gorbachev and I continue to build a foundation for better relations between our governments and our peoples. In 1989, Schultz retired from being Secretary of State and went back to Stanford, where his heart had always been. There at the university, presidents and treasury secretaries and secretaries of state continued to come to him, to call him, to ask his advice. People are dying. You feel frustration. They're dying. They're being shot. Children, are, we're talking about necklaces. Of they're course. lining up and they're shooting children. After his it's death, the man who perhaps most bitterly regretted that he could no longer seek his counsel was the one with whom he'd had such a searing disagreement on South Africa and much else, Joe Biden. What disturbs me, and I will try not to be disturbed, is not merely your <laughs> Remember, policy. I'm a taxpayer. I remember you're a taxpayer. Just because I'm Secretary of no. State, you can't kick me around. I'm a no. taxpayer. No, I understand that, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> that clip made me really miss sharing an office with Anne. I could listen to her all day. As could I. She writes our obituary column each week, and it's probably the best bit of the paper universally acknowledged as such. Um, a few things that struck me from, from what she said, though. I was reminded that Biden began his career in 1972, his Senate bid, was very much based on an anti-nuclear platform, and he was endorsed by a big anti-nuclear lobby group at the time. But the other thing that really struck me from Anne's description is when she talked about that slow and deliberative approach to foreign policy. And it was a hearkening back to a different era in American politics when the Cold War provided a unifying and clarifying theme through which America and its allies could act. And obviously, there were all kinds of exploits that went awry during that era. But there was a, a bit of common purpose. And now it's just a bit more complicated. You don't know what you're going to get from one administration to the next. Trump pushed back against US allies. With NATO, he got Canada and European countries to add about $130 billion to their defense budgets compared with 2016 levels, um, with an expectation of continuing to rise through 2024. So he did get other allies to step up but that slow and deliberative stance towards climate policy that you heard articulated by Anne, that certainly was not a hallmark of the Trump era, and that did have a destabilizing effect. John, I'm quite taken with this thesis that winning the Cold War did real damage to America's domestic politics. I mean, it does seem, of course, there were other things going on at the same time, so you can't just point to this one thing, but that sense of external threat kept party politics somewhat civilized compared with where we are now. Do you buy that thesis or do you think it's an oversimplification? Both, I suppose. It's true that there is an existential threat in a way that there isn't now and that has a tendency to focus the mind. Also, the sort of nature of the strategic rival with China now is so markedly different from that with the Soviet Union. I mean, China 
is not an imperium in quite the same way. I know it is, you know, Uyghurs and Tibetans would disagree with me, but it is not an imperium with global ambitions the way the Soviet Union was. And I think in that sense, the case for democracy made itself because the alternative was the more we learned about it, the more self-evidently awful it was. I think that the proposition that China puts forward is very different, right? It's not saying everyone has to be like us. It's saying everyone should be left alone to run their own affairs and nobody should dictate to anyone else. And that has a certain instinctive superficial appeal until you sort of peel back the onion a bit and focus on what that might really mean to, you know, ethnic minorities and countries, to dissidents. And so I really, I have to say, I kind of miss George W. Bush's democratic evangelism. But I understand why the situation is much different now without that existential threat. And for a lot of people, especially a lot of younger people, without the memory of that existential threat. It is worth keeping in mind just the scale of American military spending, which I think in the current environment can be a little, as you say, John Fasman, perplexing to those who don't remember the Cold War. But America spends about 3.4% of its GDP on military spending. It's about $730 billion. That's more than the next 10 countries combined. There are other countries that spend a larger share of their GDP on military, Saudi Arabia up to 8%. But just in sheer number, it's a remarkable, remarkable amount that America continues to spend. China is $261 billion, so less than half of America's level. And so when you think about demilitarizing America or America's shifting role in the global stage, it's just worth keeping that scale in mind because there's no one else who comes close. Thanks both. We'll be back in a moment to cast ahead to some of the thornier issues that Joe Biden will have to deal with over the next four years. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Economist Asks podcast has a challenging interview with a high-profile guest every week. I highly recommend it. This week, the host Anne McElvoy talks to Fiona Hill, who you may remember from the Trump impeachment hearings a year ago. She was the top Russia expert at the National Security Council and deputy assistant to President Trump. She was at the disastrous Helsinki summit when he appeared to side with Putin against his own intelligence agencies. This is her take on the nuclear weapons question. Trump ultimately was nuclear zero guy. In his mind, he did sort of think, I've got this special chemistry with Vladimir Putin. You know, he was trying not to focus on all the other things that were precluding this possibility. And that was really what Helsinki was about, was sit down with Putin and channel the past. Because we all know that there was a moment where Gorbachev and Reagan thought about, hey, let's just get rid of all these nuclear weapons. There was just that passing moment in those negotiations. And I think that Trump thought, maybe we can do this. But the world is an extraordinarily complex place. And if we don't have the integrity of the arsenal, that could destabilise the situation because it's not just about Russia anymore. This is an extraordinarily difficult dilemma. 
because Iran is a major problem as well. If Iran does succeed in building up a nuclear arsenal, we already know the Turks, the Saudis, many others also say, well, then why don't we have nuclear weapons? And the same thing has happened in the Asia Pacific with North Korea and their nuclear blackmail has also got Japan, South Korea and other countries worrying about the sanctity and guarantee of US nuclear forces. And will they continue to be a protection for Japan and South Korea? It sounds like you think that Joe Biden may have to disappoint progressive Democrats who would like him to demilitarise foreign policy. We have a lot to contend with and we need to focus on that. So I I completely sympathise with the idea that this nuclear standoff is a distraction. But unfortunately, we have an awful lot of other countries who are themselves propelled forward on a strategy for acquiring nukes, be their intermediate nuclear forces or strategic. John, Fiona Hill is, of course, one of the great British exports to the US. My top two would be the common law and Fiona Hill, not necessarily in that order. What did you make of that interview? I thought she really drove home how much more complex the question of nuclear containment is now than it was during George Shultz and Ronald Reagan's time. I mean, it's no longer a question of just coming to an agreement with the Russians to reduce the number of weapons or to limit the spread of weapons. You have questions about whether Iran sees it in its interest to go nuclear, which may then impel the Saudis to do the same. You've got Japan and South Korea, both very nervous. So it just seems that the threshold for development, not for use, but the threshold for development is much lower and more volatile than it was 20 or 30 years ago. We had a cover on this recently. The really striking thing about nuclear proliferation at the moment is quite how many states are simultaneously moving towards acquiring nuclear weapons. One of those is Iran. Iran was the target this week, at least indirectly, of Biden's first military action, a strike on an Iranian-backed militia in Syria in retaliation for attacks on US troops there. Charlotte, the Biden administration finds itself back with an all-too-familiar dilemma on Iran. Yes, it's really not clear how he's going to navigate this. Late last week, there was talk from the State Department about how Biden was willing to discuss a diplomatic way forward on Iran's nuclear program. And this is an area where, of course, the JCPOA, the agreement on Iranian nuclear proliferation, was signed with allies. And Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, is actively speaking with the foreign ministers, with his counterparts in France and Germany and Britain on this. But it's very hard for me to see, at least, how he continues to muddle through here He's not going to immediately come back to the table. Iran shows no sign of budging. So I I don't know. It's hard to see how he makes progress. I think that's true. And it raises a second question, too. What does progress mean in this case? Is it a success to just keep states from going nuclear that might otherwise have gone nuclear? Is it reducing the number of weapons that we and the Russians have deployed? What are the Biden administration's goals regarding nuclear proliferation? What should they be? It depends on the country, right? And you have to drill down. So with Iran, there are specific goals. So Secretary Blinken has reiterated that if Iran does come into compliance with its commitments under the JCPOA, which was the agreement signed during the Obama administration, then Biden and his team would do the same. But I think for each country, there are specific interim goals that are quite difficult to achieve, all of which come under the broader banner of trying to prevent further proliferation. 
It's also striking how connected all these issues are. One of our colleagues, James Bennett, is working on a piece at the moment about America's Iran policy and Middle East policy generally. And I was talking to him about it the other day. And he made the point that the Biden administration, like the Trump administration to some extent, and like the Obama administration before it, would like to get out of the Middle East. I think there's a widespread view in American foreign policy that essentially no good comes of getting too involved in affairs in the Middle East. And and in fact, James pointed out to me that Martin Indyk, who was a former American ambassador to Israel, very sensible on Middle Eastern issues, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal last year, the headline of which was just, the Middle East isn't worth it. So the Biden administration would like to get out of the Middle East, pay more attention to China in particular. That also, you'll remember, was the ambition of the Obama administration with the pivot to Asia. But it's pretty hard to get out of the Middle East if Iran acquires a nuclear bomb and that then sets off a whole round of nuclear proliferation uh, in the region with Saudi Arabia and other powers there also getting nuclear weapons. And so you come back once again to this really difficult issue of preventing or slowing Iran's acquisition of a nuclear weapon, which many of the people in the Biden administration, I think somebody like Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, spent years working on before. And and now they're back, not quite to square one, but almost. Well, I think the realist response would be to, to, to point out that Iran appears to be progressing toward nuclear activity now. What really would be different if America left? America may have to face the consequences of a multiply nuclear Middle East, whether it has a presence there or not. And Charlotte, getting out of the Middle East, in quotes, would also entail America relying on Saudi Arabia more as the neighborhood policeman, which doesn't seem like a great idea either. The Biden administration is trying to strike a really delicate balance with Saudi Arabia. So this week, President Biden had his first call with the Saudi king. And this week also saw the publication of a big explosive report about the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's involvement in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and his dismemberment at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul in 2018. So you see President Biden trying to balance the interests of not wanting to condone everything that Saudi Arabia does. In particular, he wants to increase diplomacy to end the war in Yemen, while also saying that he supports Saudi Arabia against threats from Iran um, and trying to maintain that partnership more broadly. Okay, thank you both. I should also add that if any listeners are wondering why in this podcast about American foreign policy, we haven't talked about China much, that's because we've got a US-China episode coming your way fairly soon. Charlotte, John, before I let you go, it's quiz time. In October 1945, The Economist reported a revolt of American scientists against Harry Truman over nuclear weapons. Truman had come to realise that the bomb could be used as a diplomatic tool to entrench America's superpower status. The Economist found this regrettable. So did, according to the report, the scientists at Los Alamos, where the first atomic bomb was produced. Scientists at the lab organised protests to demand that the technology behind the bomb be shared. Who did they want it to be shared with? They wanted to be shared with the Soviets? No, everyone, maybe. Charlotte, you get a point for that. They wanted it to be shared with the United Nations. I got a point. By 1977, an intrepid economist correspondent had visited Los Alamos, by then home to a museum to the history of the bomb. Quote, 
From an office wall, the crew of the Enola Gay, which dropped the bomb on Hiroshima, smiled down like a school football team, end quote. Where did the Enola Gay get its name? Ooh, I did actually know this in middle school, but I don't know now. I have no idea. Um, I'm not giving you anything for that. I'm feeling mean today. No, I know. I don't deserve any credit, but this is somewhere deep in my brain. Where, what, where did it come from? It came from Enola Gay Tibbetts, who was the mother of the pilot, Colonel Paul Tibbetts. Tibbetts personally selected the B-29 from a production line in Nebraska. Bonus question. How many of the Enola Gay's 12-man crew would go on to express regret? Twelve. Twelve? Did you say twelve, Fasman? I did. Yeah, twelve. Sounds like it. You're out by twelve. The answer is none. Interesting. My grandfather was in the Pacific during World War II, and he was part of the crew who was sent to Hiroshima after the bomb went off to report on the damage. How fascinating. You've got to tell us more about that. Um, he was very quiet about it, actually. He didn't really like talking about it, not surprisingly. But I am grateful that it, as part of my middle school um, project in which I knew why it was called the Nola Gay, that I interviewed all my grandparents from that time and that I was able to ask them questions about it and put it in my little report that I did in sixth grade or whenever it was. And I feel I'm glad that I took that opportunity back then. Do you still have the recordings? I feel like we ought to do a podcast on your grandparents. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> um, I have recordings of my my husband's grandfather talking about his experience, which is way more interesting because he was a in he's born in Austria and he was an interrogator as part of D-Day. So as they went across France, he was grilling various Nazis. That is fascinating. But could he punch an elk? <laughs> <laughs> I'll say yes. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to Nicolas Rufast for the sound design and John Shields, our editor. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details.